This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. On the 9th of February, an investigation committee of the National Sports Council, with the support of the Ministry of Youth and Sports, made the decision to suspend a national hockey player, Hanis Nadia On. The decision was made following Hanis' disgusting racist comment about the recent Ea Rahman concert. Basically, she said that the concert, which was jam-packed with ethnic Indians, must smell really bad. Separately, a teacher has been accused of encouraging a Form 3 student at a school in Kuala Lumpur to embrace Islam, claiming it would boost his chances of becoming a national footballer. These are just a couple of examples of discrimination happening in schools and sports. But just how well are the relevant authorities addressing these issues? And what needs to be done to prevent these instances from happening again? Joining me on the show today to discuss this is Jason Wee. He's the co-founder of Architects of Diversity. Welcome to the show, Jason. How are you? Thanks, Ashwin. Uh, happy to be on board again. What are your thoughts on the national hockey players' comments and the subsequent action taken? So I, I think we need to put this incident into perspective, right? Where Hanis On was um, not only just an, an average individual like you or I, um, but she was a public face, right? I mean, she's a member of a national team. Uh, which that naturally puts her in the public limelight and also use, she uses her accounts for uh, publication of her own persona. Mm -hmm. Now, when we put into context that she is, you know, an individual with social influence, then her comments must also be viewed in that certain light. In the case of this, you know, where she made this, you know, absolutely horrible comment, um, that required not only just a consideration of the weight of the comment itself, but it's also its subsequent impact into the community. Um, so obviously, you know, I, I think I definitely support the suspension, but I think we need to zoom out for a bit and think about, have we even had a larger conversation about what is proportionate uh, in terms of punishment and, you know, is a suspension appropriate for a specific cause of action? And the reason we really don't have a discussion of this proportionality is because uh, we haven't even started a conversation about what should be punished or what right. should be frowned upon or what should be regulated, as well as what are appropriate measures taken. Um, obviously, you know, in this case where the Ministry of Youth and Sports decided to suspend, I, I think that's, you know, a pretty, yeah, it's, you know, in, in some ways a drastic action in some ways, but perhaps not for the proportionality of comments she made. Uh, but the reason it's difficult for us to ascertain is because we we have no framework to judge that. Mm -hmm. And so what I think, you know, it is, you know, somewhat proportionate. Um, it's I, I can see why the incident would make some parties feel uncomfortable because it seems very ad hoc, right? right? That we don't have a larger system to comment or to regulate these actions. Right. And I want to get to that, um, you know, talking about the larger system, what should be the steps moving forward and all in just a second. But, you know, coming to the defense of the hockey player, um, Pasimar's MP, uh, Ahmad Fad Fadli Shari, she's, he said that the suspension should be lifted because she has apologized and she has many Indian friends. Um, this is often the argu an argument you hear a lot that, you know, I'm not racist, I have Indian friends, I'm not racist, I have friends from so-and-so. Does that argument hold weight? So I, I think there are three layers to this, right? One, in terms of, you know, you can very much have as many Indian minority friends, you know, as, as you have, and still very much behave and hold racist attitudes. Um, so I, I just think to debunk that, that argument in the first place, 
we really need to take a step back. And I think this argument is, is still pretty prevalent in Malaysia, uh, although I think it will take some time for us to acknowledge and confront that while you can have friends, uh, bad behavior can still exist. Right. The second thing is that the, the immediate rebuttal that comes to my head is that if she was truly apologetic and you know regretful, then she would uh, accept the kind of punishment or a reparation that she has, she's due, right? When she has made a comment and has harmed and induced some form of harm to the community. Um, and I think we need to position this in a context where her, her comment was not one-off, right? That this is a piece of a larger sentiment that's building in public and she's adding on to a already big pile. And so when it is true that, you know, um, she could, you know, she, she could be sincerely apologetic, uh, that sincere apology could and should come with um, responsibility for her actions. And I think the third thing that I want to note is that I think in, when it comes to politicians commenting on this, it's really, I, I think we need to recognize the role of the comment itself that, you know, this, you know, Pasir Mas MP Ahmad Palishari is really playing into a greater sense of identity politics here when you're taking an incident um, that is, you know, pretty inflammatory when it comes to two different groups being in a position of conflict and raising that into uh, a, a criticism against a ruling or a, a, a criticism against an authority, then we need to also understand that that comment is also fueling greater sentiments that also are underlying a lot of um, you guess, dissatisfaction with, you know, current social justice trends. So that also needs to be addressed. And that again, you know, that <laughs> flows into the larger problem of not having a broader discussion that encapsulates different forms of injustices that exist in society. Right. Now, while most people are in support of the suspension, uh, most people uh, seem to agree with you that it is uh, proportionate, some say that it is too harsh as she has already apologised. I'm wondering, um, this goes back to what you brought up earlier, right? I'm wondering if A, an apology is sufficient. How do we calculate that? Um, and B, what should the process be for athletes who say racist things, etc., to assess if you know they, they are fit to to come back into the sport again, to represent our country again? Um, you know, discrimination, or if you look at racism, it, it can come, it can manifest in many forms. It is a spectrum. It can be, you know, range from what Honey said to perhaps something, uh, you know, more explicit racist, racist language like the K-word. Or, you know, it can even become physical. It can even be physical violence. Right. So I, I think in terms just on a first level, the apology, that's, I think, very much insufficient given uh, the, the, the magnitude of harm or her audience that mm -hmm. definitely saw it, right? So definitely she should do something else, right? That, that there needs to be some compensation or reparation based on the harm that's been. But I think on your larger concern of how do we make sure that they don't do it again, right? And I think we need to localize racist behavior or even prejudicial behavior in any forms of identities, right? Even be it through gender, race, religion, that behavior uh, from the individual is oftentimes a larger testament to the norms and norms that dictate whether that behavior can manifest, mm -hmm. right? So I think before we ask, how do we fix the individual? We also first need to ask, how do we fix the system? Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, you have a bunch of athletes or a bunch of teachers um, commenting and making absolutely racist remarks, then sure, you know, the individual is somewhat at fault here, but there is a larger uh, 
horrible norm that's at play, which is a norm that permits uh, what permits the individual from getting away with this, but also permits the individual from doing this and not receiving appropriate apprehension, right? And so in the case of uh, Hanis On, I think it's quite encouraging to some degree that her actions were met with, you know, such degree of punishment because not only, you know, typical uh, sense of how punishment works, that it does instill a sense of deterrence and a sense of norm setting uh, among the larger organization. So I think we need to look at that first. Right. But in terms of whether we, uh, at the individual level, what should she do? Is it anti-discrimination training? Um, unfortunately, that a lot of individualized interventions, um, the, the results are dubious, right? So when it comes to anti-discrimination workshops, a lot of times, um, you know, companies roll out uh, anti-bias trainings or implicit bias trainings where some of our prejudices are more um, in our subconscious. The results in that are very iffy. Right. So the results of the, the particular intervention um, are dubious at most. And so whether or not she should go, um, you know, serve the community or understand it a bit better, I think we could, you know, employ a whole host of toolbox of tools, you know, to intervene. And whether or not the ministry has that right now, I, you know, I, I, I won't comment, but I think the quality and efficacy of those tools are need, need to be uh, looked into a bit deeper. But I think that's more to say. Um, and I really want to kind of lean in on the, the systemic behavioral bit, because as much as we would like individuals to change, we cannot wait on the individual to change. We need greater rules and regulations at the systemic level, at the institutional level, to ensure that norms are moved in positive ways. We're assuming Hanis does have plenty of Indian friends, as so she claims. Um, people often cite integration as a way to combat racism, um, bigotry, and things like that, right? Do you think this incident where she says, I have many Indian friends, and yet she said this, points to one of the limits of integration or what integration can co- accomplish? Wow, this is, yeah, this is definitely like a huge topic, right? Uh, and I think integration comes in different ways. Mm. The kind of integration in many parts that we see in Malaysia are very, you know, casual context. So you go to school with this individual you perhaps are neighbors with them, but that integration doesn't necessarily a produce conversations that uh, create spaces for say minorities or even majority groups in that case mm-hmm. to share their you know either opinions on policy, opinions on social trends, and so because of that, that integration doesn't necessarily translate to transformative behavior from the receiving party. That's number one. The second thing is that integration uh, needs to be uh, equal in some ways, right? So in a situation where Hanis on is, you know, uh, is belongs to a majority group and she interacts with minority group, that integration can also produce um, negative interactions, which inevitably can also create worse perceptions and prejudices. So integration even of itself isn't a, you know, golden bullet when it comes to solving racism, right? Mm-hmm. I think it definitely is pivotal to ensuring that communities understand each other. But integration must happen at at optimal conditions. It must happen in beneficial ways. When I say beneficial ways, I mean one in in conditions that do not disproportionately disadvantage a particular group, but also create space for people to share uh, their deepest concerns. And so, yes, I think at the current limit, you know, when people say I have a lot of Indian friends, I can imagine Hanis probably maybe haven't hasn't had a conversation about how Indian Malaysians feel in Malaysia or what kind of experiences right. they've had, right? And so 
it's very easy for you know members of privilege or majority groups to say, uh, I have these ties to minority groups, therefore they somewhat mask my privilege or mask my behavior in some ways. Um, and I think stopping at the integration level does limit that to some extent. And that's partially because our the ways that Malaysia has understood integration in the past um, has largely been a national unity purpose, right? That we need to integrate more individuals because when we put everyone in the same room, uh, some positive outcomes will occur. While some positive outcomes might occur, uh, that doesn't necessarily always happen. Um, right. That certain things need to happen in a room in order to create, uh, you know, all good and try to minimize the kinds of negative interactions that exist. Right. You brought up that it is, in, you know, it's more integral um, to focus on the systems, the laws, the institutions than individual, um, you know, focusing on how we can, you know, better individuals in that sense. Um, what do you think needs to be fixed? Um, you know, observing our, let's, our, you know, sports landscape in Malaysia, what needs to be fixed when we look at the institution, when we look at the policies, the laws, and so on and so forth? Right. And so I, and I think I don't come like to tie this deeper into mm-hmm. the, the ways our, you know, our government officials and ministers have been responding to this. Because I think while, say, YB Hena and YB Fadlina's responses have been uh, very encouraging in the sense that they've been taking a strong stance, um, their comments have been really largely limited to the incident itself. Right. I haven't heard any plans whatsoever about instituting instituting rules where that you know specifically mention what is acceptable and what's not acceptable because that really is the bulk of ambiguity where individuals think it's okay and there's a great difference in expectations from authorities and say individuals on the ground right so we have no plans to define what racism or discrimination is uh, in Malaysia and so that really is a lacking bit when it comes to institutional effort. Because if you're just going to address ad hoc cases as it comes along, you're going to, well, I'm so sorry, but you're going to be firefighting for a long time right. during your ministerial position. So that's, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, really integrating across the ways of reparations and corrective punishment. Um, and so I think the current knee-jerk reaction that we have is that once an individual uh, does something is that we need to punish that individual because uh, that individual is seen as a anomaly within the system. But I suspect that the that they're very much not the anomaly, right? The, these are behaviors that are very much uh, commonplace. And the only reason we could see or, you know, see past this veil is because it was published on social media. Um, and so what we also need is a system that doesn't disincentivize uh, people from speaking out because it's individuals that, you know, uh, who want to speak out but fear that the punishment might not be appropriate or might be, you know, in some quote-unquote blown out proportion, which is some of the concerns that we heard why people don't report uh, these incidents. Uh, and so it needs to be not only institutionalized just at the highest level, uh, at the ministerial level, but also through how, uh, you know, in, in, especially when it comes to the education ministry, JPNs uh, and PPDs, when it comes to the Ministry of Youth and Sports, how do we create codes of conduct that, uh, need to be followed by all you know national leagues, by all foot, by all football basketball associations in the country. You brought up YB Fadlina, and I want to get to her and you know the the education landscape and schools in just a second. But I have one more question um, with regard to sports. Um, you know, 
and and it's also another case where someone said something incredibly um you know bigoted incredibly uh, you know this is it's specifically about religion but but it ties into what we are talking about because recently former national badminton player bong guan yik he criticized uh, the badminton association of malaysia's management for being led by malays who and i quote pray five times a day um and he basically said that this is why you know our our standards are you know are, are not as high as it can be um, people are lazy and so on and so forth now the youth and sports minister once again uh, hanayo condemned the player and said that and i quote i believe that religion has never disturbed the performance of athletes and sports this has this has never been a problem in malaysia sports must be free of racism and politics and quote um I think this ties into what you were talking earlier where this isn't just one off cases isn't it? It, it what we are seeing if this these are incident we are just talking about two cases in sports that have come out in the past couple of weeks so surely this encapsulates a larger problem how do you see it I I don't want to dismiss the fact that it is encouraging that YB Hana yes. would say something like this mm-hmm. right so so let's not dismiss that mm-hmm. but what is what still needed and what we're I think hungry for is a greater um acknowledgement of the problem right um where she says this has never been a problem in malaysia is it like is 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 that the case where individuals don't feel frustrated that they don't understand the other side or they have these sentiments boiling in um and so while religion itself is clearly not the issue here it's about the perceptions and conflicting between religions right and so for a minister to just say force must be free of racism in politics it's nice sound bites to hear but what i'm what i'm still hoping to hear is that we understand that there are individuals might have frustrations or different expectations that's create a conversation around that because the conversation in some ways is the end all as well because then individuals can also have that access to flushing their concerns out i i think we really need to take about think think about these social media postings right because i feel that a lot especially people from the older generation would think that oh wow we haven't heard this uh we didn't you know we never had this in our day while you know news flash is that the you know social media has de- democratized uh you know communication and allowed individuals to speak up freely and so yes you are going to hear more people and more opinions that you probably haven't heard in the past and we need to also understand that people go to social media because they feel that their sentiments are not heard or there are no channels for them to appropriately uh bring this up and so this is also more systemic to a larger feedback culture within either you know at the ministerial level or within the grassroots level um how do we make sure that if an individual feels frustrated at any point of time that they have the appropriate channels to push that to or and and at the same time receive an appropriate response uh, even though we do have some channels right now are individuals that are reporting or are venting their comments receiving an explanation of what's going on or is there um you know more targeted approach uh of saying okay maybe there's something going on with this sports group maybe let's intervene there and say um here are some expectation misalignments or here are some prejudices that are clearly happening within your sports group right. and let's address that On the show with me today is Jason Wee. He's the co-founder of Architects of Diversity. After the break, we talk about discrimination in schools. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Darshan Johan, and on the show with me today is Jason Wee. He's the co-founder of Architects of Diversity, and we're talking about discriminations in schools and sports. 
Now, Jason, moving on to schools, um, recently a teacher has been accused of encouraging a Form 3 student at a school in Kuala Lumpur to embrace Islam, claiming that it would boost his chances of becoming a national footballer. Now, his parents have filed a police report on the matter. Um, what are your thoughts on this on this particular inst- uh, incident? And what are the laws that we have in place that can address this issue? Do we have any laws in place? So... Uh, I, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, right. and so I, I know the the specific you know claim is that that this you know disregards some you know larger right. greater protections against religious freedom. But I, I won't comment on that, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's for me when I when I heard about this case, what was most disappointing for me is that the family felt that they their only source of receiving any form of uh, reparation or some some fixing in this regard is by going to the police. That, that that's a, such a steep sense of distrust within the authorities that be um, that we would have to appeal to the largest and highest authority for such. Uh, it's not a small case in any regards, but it's very localized, right? So some questions that I have, you know, one, uh, what has been the relationship like between the school authorities and the parents of minority groups in this situation? And number two, uh, what is also the relationship between this teacher and the rest of the other students that, you know, could potentially be ongoing that we haven't heard in this particular case of this police report? Um, and so what are my thoughts? It's, it's pretty much similar to to what I just said, that there's a lot of systemic reasons why uh, systemic reasons why this still happens and we need systemic approaches. But again, um, we have not heard that coming out from the ministry. Uh, you know, we, I, and again, I appreciate the sentiment, and this is a, a tagline that Wabi Fatlina and uh, the Ministry of Education has been using in all their infographics, is that Tiada Discriminasi Pendidikan, which is no discrimination education, which is great uh, and a great sentiment to to expound, but what are the sorts of policies and plans that follow up on that? Right. Absolutely, because it's one thing to say there, there's no discrimination in education, which is commendable. Um, I think it, it's the right thing to say, but the fact of the matter is there is discrimination in education and it is happening. Yeah, the fact that, you know, uh, in, in the the regulations for uh, the research department within the Ministry of Education, that if you go to their website, uh, one of the first few things you see when you're conducting research in the education system is that you cannot ask any questions related to racism um, within, within, <laughs> within schools. And so, right. great, you know, if you claim that there's no discrimination, uh, but one... Uh, your system doesn't allow for greater investigation on that. And two, uh, based on our results that we had, we we conducted, you know, AOD conducted a survey back in 2021 mm-hmm. uh, among adult Malaysians uh, if they experienced discrimination in education before. And half of Malaysians have experienced some form of microaggression or for some form of, um, you know, denial of opportunity because of their identity, be it race, religion, or gender. Right. So... What should be done, um, whether we look at the short term or the long term, um, what what should be done? Because this is a serious problem. Um, and like we said, while it's important to, to condemn um, individual actions, um, it's important you know, for police to carry out their investigations and, and all of these things, how do we get to a point where this isn't an issue at all? So we need a combination of soft and hard approaches. Where these soft approaches is ones that I feel like Malaysians are very, very much default to, uh, where they're the you know town halls, um, film screenings, discussions. 
And those are soft things that help edge individuals into corners that um, would be more positive and have greater sentiments towards different groups. So I think we're very familiar with the soft approach. What we are lacking, though, um, is the hard approaches to it. And so the short and long term to this is quite, you know, it, it can go on for years and years. At the short term, in, in the easiest and lowest hanging fruit is instituting some form of internal policy within the ministry, be it the Ministry of Youth and Sports, be it the Ministry of Education, be it any form of ministry, right? So instituting some form of uh, guidelines. There is, you know, a guideline book for bullying, but we do not have one for discrimination at the moment. So that, that's a very low-hanging fruit, which haven't seen a lot of movement. In terms of medium term, um, we could potentially amend certain federal laws. So for example, in the case of uh, the workforce, the employment uh, in an employment act that with the Ministry of Labor, uh, it was last year, if I'm not mistaken, that there was an amendment to the act that specifically inserted a clause on discrimination. And so while it was not defined, it was a first time mention of the word discrimination for civil uh, discrimination, where individuals discriminate other individuals and, and some form of regulation over that. That's a great first step, very slow, but it is a first step. And so one possible approach to that is ensuring that some form of de definition and mention that exists in the anti-discrimination uh, framework for laws. The third thing is a more longer term approach, uh, one that perhaps it is quite new for you know a lot of the you know, developing democracies in many sense. It's a larger approach at equal opportunity and uh, anti-discrimination laws. And so, for example, in the UK, uh, they have the Equal Opportunities Act that not only provides for protections against, say, direct discrimination and indirect discrimination, but also provides for sufficient accommodation where if a building, for example, is not uh, accommodating uh, OKU or, you know, uh, disabled individuals from accessing grants, from accessing appropriate uh, infrastructure, then that also falls under the purview of equal opportunities and, you know, uh, looking at the broader sense of uh, accessing public institutions. And so that's a long-term solution uh, that's in the works. And I know in the past, we've had some form of, you know, discussion on laws of this during the Najib administration era. Right. It had, I think, the National Harmony Act, which is okay um, in, in some ways, but, you know, the, the draft of that, which we, we never got to see the light of it, but it was very, it, it was looking at, uh, it was a band-aid at a bleeding state. Right. It was band-aids at addressing hate speech, which is important, which I will not go to the fact that right? hate speech definitely needs to be addressed, but there are larger reasons why hate speech happens, right? And so we need a greater uh, legislative approach at ensuring that the roots of the problem, which is equal opportunities from an identity point of view, uh, needs to be implemented in some form in the future decades. Uh, I don't think we're having that discussion just yet. I understand that the pressures that are uh, being imposed on the current government in their not only first 100 days, as well as the upcoming state elections, which uh, some would say that perhaps has, you know, kind of handcuffed them a bit uh, in terms of not taking any drastic actions. Uh, if, if those, you know, claims are true, then I hope that we would at least see after the state elections uh, more efforts from the government side to start conversations and about the longer term solutions and have action into the shorter term solutions, the low hanging fruits. Jason, 
it is a larger problem because this isn't just a student saying racist things or, you know, something that falls under the, the category of religious extremism or bigotry, uh, bigotry. It's not just among students. Right? We are talking about a teacher. How have we as a nation allowed this to get to this point? Is it a lack of proper training for our teachers when they go through the, you know, the whole process? Or are, are we looking at much deeper institutional rots? I think it's it's most definitely in the latter. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's great that we're finally, I, I think, you know, in the, the time that I've been around the policy circles in, in the past few years, that there's definitely been more conversations this. But uh, there's a reason why these conversations never get anywhere, which is uh, the kind of the tool of this kind of institutional rot of shoving everything under the carpet by means of not releasing data, right? We don't have uh, statistics on the level of uh, segregation in schools, you know, how, what's the racial breakdown of individualized schools? We don't have, say, statistics of, you know, socioeconomic uh, progress um, from disaggregated racial groups uh, and more intersectional approaches to that. So we are, in many ways, uh, covered by this shroud of ambiguity uh, and unknowing that even with the uh, debate about uh, university admission of having quotas or how minorities are uh, being discriminated from having higher standards, the, the truth of the matter is like, we don't know, <clears throat> you know, it's very easy to say, you know, no discrimination exists and discrimination, exi discrimination exists and never come to that resolution because we simply don't have the statistics for that. Uh, and so because of that, there's a larger institutional rot, the rot being the sense of distrust uh, between communities, but also a distrust at the authorities from ever taking appropriate action in this. And so for the gover current government that, you know, has recently taken in power in December, um, when it comes to uh, approaching issues of identity, the first thing is really building a lot of trust uh, that putting is putting information out there, uh, not patronizing, you know, the public that say, oh, you know, you can't handle this information uh, because I feel like that's a lot of sentiments, especially when it comes to releasing information out in the public, but rather um, having a structured conversation around that uh, in ways that doesn't just end at who is wrong and who is right, but rather who has been wronged in the past and how do we move forward from that? Before we wrap this conversation up, would you have a final message for us? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's very easy to kind of lose hope. And I you know sometimes, sometimes I'm struggling with this as well, right. especially if we bring a lot of expectations into this new government uh, to address immediate points of reform. Um, while I think all that is true, uh, we need to, I, I think the opportunity is for this current government is to make uh, information and policies that would are long-standing, that can stand the test of time, really. And that should really be the focus rather than addressing, um, say, immediate short-term cycles, which we know will always happen. Uh, and I'm sure that's crucial for the electoral cycle. But for long-term reform, we really need to be looking at uh, significant points of change that would still be there regardless of whichever government comes in in the future. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Ashwin. That was Jason Wee, co-founder of Architects of Diversity. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.